If you take your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter number 2. 1 Timothy chapter number 2. So thankful you're here this morning. I know we have many guests here. We have a couple baptisms after the service. I met with them yesterday. Excited to do that. We have a, a large gathering of family and friends that are here. And thank you all for being here today. Uh, it's our honor to have you with us. Um, I hope we don't run out of Chick-fil-A gift cards. But if we do, we'll, I know where you live. I'll get them to you. All right. No problem there. First Timothy chapter number 2, verse number 1. I want to preach to you a message simply entitled this, One. Now, it's odd that I have three points, but the message is called One. But really, there is one point to this sermon and three thoughts we'll talk about this morning. The Bible says in verse number one of 1 Timothy chapter number two, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And sometimes if you have a bad neighbor, that can be difficult. Praying and thanking the Lord for them, praying for them, maybe that they would be saved or that they uh, just you you would be able to win them over. And then it gets even more difficult because in verse number two says for kings and for all that are in authority. And if you would like, you could put a little arrow there in parentheses. You could put Pelosi, maybe if you wanted to. Uh, there, because it gets more difficult to pray for these folks. But it is a Bible command. Uh, just whether or not you like our president, we're commanded to pray for him. Amen. We're commanded to pray for those that are in authority. The Bible says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it as the rivers of water, whithersoever he will. So we pray for our, our, our leaders and our politicians. So it gets tough. And then the Bible instructs us that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. I've underlined all those uh, words there, and I have put under them, may this be said at my funeral. And I lived a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So that's what... That's what our goal is, to lead a quiet and peaceable life, to honor God with our life. And, and that's what I'm hoping one day can be said about my life. In verse number 4, the Bible says that this God, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. See, when the Bible says that there is truth, that means then that there is also lies. When one thing exists, oftentimes it means that the opposite exists. So if there is an up, you know what that means? There's a down. If there's a right, there's a or left, either one. I just usually confuse people on that one. But really when we have these things that exist, it means that by virtue there is the opposite. If there's a heads on your coin, there's probably a tails. And in life, the Bible says that there is a such thing as truth. You know what that means? There's also a such thing as a lie. Verse number five. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 
There's more than one way to skin a cat. Sometimes we say things like this. We'll say, to each his own. Maybe you've heard it put it like this. You have your way and I have my way. And all of these thoughts, all of these statements are meant to say that I can believe one thing or I can do one thing and you can do the other and we can coexist and get along. We live in an age of pluralism. And don't let that term scare you. The word means that there are more than one thing that are viewed as equal in authority. In other words, you can believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe, and we'll all end up at the same place. Pluralism. I think we've arrived at this place because of political correctness. And I, I, I am just exhausted and wearied at the, uh, the, the mandate, it seems, that we must be politically correct at all times. How about we just try to be correct at all times and not so much worry about political correctness. I just would rather be right. But oftentimes I think that we have arrived at this age of pluralism where more than one thing is acceptable, more than one thing can be right. We've arrived at this place because... How dare you say that you are right because that means that somebody else must be wrong. I will tell you this morning that the Bible is a very inclusive book. The Bible says in 1 Peter that this book is not of any private interpretation, but this book was given to us as holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so this book is not for private interpretation. That means that I can understand it, and you can understand it, and someone down the road can understand it, and someone in Central America can understand it, and someone in Africa can understand it, and none of us need Brother Andrew to tell us exactly Exactly what it means because it's not of private interpretation. The Word of God is very inclusive. The Bible says that God will keep this book, His Word, from generation to generation. So first century Jerusalem had it and now 21st century America has it. God is keeping His promise that this book will never fade away. God is including every generation until He comes back. God's Word will stand. God's Word is very inclusive. The Gospel is very inclusive. You see, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, that's actually in our passage, God will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. God's desire for man is that everyone would be saved. It's very inclusive. The Bible says in Titus chapter 2 verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. God is beckoning every man to come unto him and be saved. So the word of God is very inclusive. The, The message of the gospel is very inclusive. But I am here today to tell you that the means of salvation is very exclusive. And I don't mean to say or somehow insinuate that only a few deserve to be saved because none of us deserve salvation. When we really take account of our lives, we're about a buck and a half worth of dirt that has done nothing but rebel against God since the time we got on this planet. 
And so the message of the gospel is very inclusive, but the means of the gospel is very exclusive. And what I mean is the Bible makes very clear that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible says, neither is there under heaven given any other name whereby men must be saved. There is one name that men can be saved and it is through the name of Jesus Christ. So while the Bible is inclusive and the gospel is inclusive, meaning anybody and everybody can be saved. It doesn't matter how bad you are, how bad you've been, or how long you've been bad. God wants to save you this morning. So it's very inclusive, but the way to salvation is very exclusive. And yet we still have people in our day and age, in this pluralistic society that we live in, that are essentially telling us that it is not this way. I want to direct your attention to the screens. I want to share with you some of my spiritual heroes on the screen this morning. And I'm not trying to vilify these people so we're clear. Have you ever seen in the newspaper when a bad story is published, they get a bad and ugly picture of that person? I tried to get a pretty picture of Oprah. But she says there are millions of ways to be a human being and many paths to what you call God. She says this in a discussion with a Christian on air as they're talking about how we can get to God. And she says there are many paths to God. She also says, I'm a Christian who believes that there are certainly many more paths to God than Christianity. And by no means am I trying to vilify Oprah. That's what she believes. And and frankly, that's what society as a whole is beginning to accept. A pluralistic view that says we can all disagree on what it means to be saved, but we will all eventually be saved. That's what pluralistic means. And it's not just Oprah that says this type of thing. I want to show you the next slide Benjamin Franklin, one of the great forefathers of our nation, no doubt a great man when it comes to his accomplishments. But he said, I believe in one God, creator of the universe. Now, I want to tell you, he was asked to write the summation of his religious views right before he died. This was penned six weeks before his death. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render to him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. Hey, so far, I'm, I'm all for that. So far, he's right on point. I believe God is worthy of our worship. I believe it honors God when we love our neighbor. That's the second great commandment, by the way. But he goes on to say, as for Jesus of Nazareth, I think the system of morals and religion as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw. But I have some doubts to his divinity, meaning whether or not he was truly God. Though it is a question I do not have dogmatism upon, meaning it's not a molehill I'd be willing to die on, but this is what I believe. Having never studied it, 
and think it is needless to busy myself with it now where I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. You see, his, he, I don't necessarily believe he thinks in a pluralistic view, but, but his view is not through Jesus clearly. And he says, I'll just busy myself figuring that stuff out later. You know what really saddens me is all the knowledge that this man had in law, in science, in philosophy. This man is one of the most brilliant men to ever live in world history. And he says, yeah, I just never took the time to study out what Jesus said. I'm telling you this morning that the Bible declaratively proclaims that there is only one way to God. Amen. The man, Christ Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? Because that question determines your eternal destiny. The Bible states that there is one, and we'll look at three quick thoughts this morning before we leave. The Bible says there is one. Well, what is it saying? There is one person of salvation. The Bible says in verse number five, it calls Jesus the mediator. He is the mediator. He's the one mediator between God and man. What does that mean? Well, you see, when God created the heavens and the earth and he created all things that are, for by him everything consists and are upheld by the word of his power. So don't buy into this evolutionary argument that somehow we evolved from monkeys and we dropped our tails and we got morals, although the rest of the animal kingdom did not. So don't buy into that. The Bible says God created everything. And so when God did create everything, he created everything perfect. He said it is very good. So everything was good. And he gave to man one simple command. He said, of every tree of the garden you can eat freely, the tree of life, all the other trees that put on their fruit, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that ye eat of it, ye shall surely die. Man had one commandment. The law of God came from the very beginning. And we don't know how long time passed. I heard preacher bring up a pretty good point. Well, it would probably take a long time to name all the animals, so it had to be some length of time. But eventually one day Eve was out there maybe picking some fruit, maybe just uh, sunbathing, I really don't know. But the Bible tells us that Satan and the form of a serpent began to speak unto her. And says, boy, look at this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of, the, of good and evil. And she says, no, I can't, I can't eat of it. I can't even touch it. God said that if I did, I would surely die. And the devil said, thou shalt not surely die. But God does know that in the day they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall be like him. Whew. What an awesome opportunity for man to expand its horizons. Man's never meant to stay here on this earth. Man's never meant to be under subjection. So Eve takes of the fruit because it looked good, it tasted good, and she desired it. And the Bible says at the moment that she and Adam ate of that fruit, God came to earth, but the relationship was different. 
You see, before God came every day and walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, hand in hand, just walking along, talking, everything was good in their relationship because the earth was created good. But now man has trespassed against a holy God. He said, thou shalt not eat, and man did eat. And the Bible tells us that the next time God came down to speak with Adam and Eve, they were hiding from him. They didn't want to see God. Why? Because they were guilty. They knew they had disobeyed him. And so the relationship would never be the same. We were separated from God. In fact, to take this a step further, this is the last time that God meets with Adam and Eve or any of their direct descendants. He never walks with them again. Why? Because the relationship had been separated. What once was good now was not so good. Because sin entered into the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. The Bible says, Thou art of purer eyes that thou canst even behold iniquity. Meaning God cannot even look on sin or be in the presence of sin because he is that holy. God couldn't fellowship with us. God couldn't walk with us hand in hand like he had. And so now the plan, I suppose, was that fathers and mothers would teach their children how to worship God, how they could come to God on His terms, and yet only one generation passes, and we see that system not work. Cain and Abel come to God to present unto Him offerings to worship Him. And Cain knew what was right, and yet he chose to worship God on his terms. It was the invention of false religion from the very beginning. God had asked for a blood sacrifice, and Cain rejected that and offered him what he wanted instead of what God wanted. And now we see that the system that daddy would teach son and son would teach grandson just was not going to last very long. We needed a mediator. You see, a mediator is unique. He's not somebody that's only representing one party. He represents both parties equally for the purpose of reconciliation. See, I spent some time with my friend Bud. He uh, is a real estate agent. He works for Remax in Ohio. And boy, he's right near Columbus. And he is a busy, busy man. In fact, uh, when I arrived, I arrived on a Tuesday... On Monday, he had posted three houses, and by Friday when I left, Bud had already sold two of those houses. I'm telling you, his truck phone was ringing off the hook. But it was really cool for a kind of an outsider to see the real estate world, because Bud is serving as an advocate. His client may be selling a house, and he's speaking to the representative agent of the other client who's searching for a house, and they're trying to work through all the details of, well, this is the, this is the offer, this is what's wrong with the house, and they're, they're working on behalf of their client. But that is not the picture of which the Bible speaks of Jesus when it says that he is our uh, mediator. In fact, the picture is much more like this. God comes to the conference room table and sits down. And we approach the conference room table on the other side and sit down. And there is something between us that we cannot reconcile ourselves. 
And so Jesus comes to the table being perfectly qualified to mediate on God's behalf and on man's behalf. You say, how was he so perfectly qualified? Well, I'll tell you, because Jesus was God in the flesh. And he was man on this earth. The Bible tells us that God became flesh. In fact, when God wanted to send us a note, to send us a word of reconciliation, the Bible says he did this by sending his son, the perfect expression of himself. In the beginning was the word, the the word, the expression. Jesus was the expression of God to us. And now we sit at the conference room table, God on one side, holy as can be, us on the other side, wicked and vile as can be. And there in the middle, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man in that He serves man, the Son of God in that He obeyed the Father. And for the purpose of reconciliation, He advocates on both parties' behalf. There is only one man qualified for that position. There is only one man who could do what Jesus did in bringing those two parties together. You see, before Jesus died on the cross, our separation was represented by a veil in the temple. God on one side of the veil and man on the other side of the veil. And we could never pass through the veil. But the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil was rent in two. It was torn right down the middle to prove to us today that we can access the very throne of God as long as we go through the death of Jesus Christ. There is one person of salvation. Listen to me. Salvation is not found in religious structure. Uh, uh, Salvation is not found in doing the right thing. Salvation is found in a person and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again for our eternal redemption. There is one person of salvation. But I want you to see, secondly, there is one payment for salvation. Verse number 6 uses this word to describe what Jesus did. Who gave himself a ransom for all. A ransom. That word means a price for redemption. Probably the way that we would be most familiar with that term is maybe on a movie where somebody kidnaps someone and that person calls up the, the, the concerned family members and maybe they write them a note and they have their, their, their family member, their loved one, and they write them a note or send them a message through a phone and they say, we want such and such price so that we can give them back. It's a ransom note or a ransom price. That's probably the way that we would be the most familiar with it. And basically, that's what Jesus became for us, our ransom price. He paid a price that none other could pay. You see, it's a remarkable thing when somebody in our world would give themselves or give their life for another person. But it is not unheard of. You see, I'm thinking this morning that if you were to tell me Uh, I I know this is not a real thing, but if you were to tell me that my son Thomas needed a heart transplant and that I could give my son my heart, knowing full well it would end my life, I would do it without thinking twice because I love my son that much. We see tremendous amounts of courage and love 
when we see soldiers go to war for a nation and for an idea of democracy. We see people like first responders run into burning buildings so that they might save someone there. They're sacrificing themselves so that they might save someone else. So in our world, it's not unheard of that somebody would give their life for someone else. But when Jesus gave his life, the Bible kind of speaks of this. It says, Romans chapter 5, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. You see, somebody might be willing to die for a good person. Yet peradventure for a good man, somebody not quite as good, but still we could deem him a, a decent kind of guy. Some would even dare die for him. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we had rebelled against God. And you say, yeah, but Brother Andrew, I'm not all that bad. The Bible says there is none that seeketh to do good. There is none righteous, no, not one. As good as you can tie your double Windsor knot, and as steamed as you can make your jacket, underneath these really pretty clothes, we are all just rotten sinners. And so Jesus looked down on heaven and he died for murderers. He died for adulterers. He died for fornicators. He died for homosexuals. He died for every man's worst sin. And and you know the sin I'm talking about. The sin that you haven't even told your friends about. The sin that your family doesn't even know about. The one that you've kept private by yourself all so long. That is the sin that Jesus came to die for. You at your very worst. And he paid the ransom price. He gave what you could not give. And the Bible says in Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Imagine the father sending his son to die on the cross for you. Why did he do that? Because the Bible says, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, the ransom price was paid. There is one person of salvation There is one payment for salvation. And finally, there is one path to salvation. Though the world may disagree, though some may think that it's unfair, the Bible states without a shadow of a doubt, there is salvation in none other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. It is only through the name of Jesus that we can be saved. But I suppose that one of the reasons that we have developed into a pluralistic society is because we are terrified if we get the answer wrong. Have you ever thought of that? I heard somebody saying the other day, a a celebrity, he was saying, isn't it funny that we all just, the, the religion we're born into is always the right one. And I can tell you, I just spent... Uh, about a week in another country on the other side of the world and, and all of those people are born into a religion which I think is absolutely false. And it's no fault of their own. But oftentimes, maybe the thought has crossed your mind, what if mine is not the right one? I mean, we're not taught... We're used to being wrong. I mean... Especially husbands, we don't like to admit it, but we're used to being wrong. 
We, we, we know that sometimes we make mistakes. We, we can deal with that. But oftentimes our mistakes do not haunt us for eternity. If you are wrong on this issue, the consequence is eternal separation from God and damnation in a lake of fire. The stakes are too high to be wrong. And so I think what people have done is they've understood this, that if I'm wrong, boy, that's a bad deal. So they have tried to hope that there are many ways. Because if there are many ways, that means that their way is right. And nobody wants to be so exclusive as to say that only one way is right. Because if only one way is right and I choose the other way, that means I'm wrong and the consequences will be so severe. We can't deal with it. And yet the Bible says in John chapter 14, if you want to take your Bible there, you can. If you want to, if you want to listen to me quote it, that's fine as well. Thomas asks a way to heaven. He asked Jesus, how do I get to heaven? What is the way? Jesus, although I said the Bible is inclusive, the gospel is inclusive, Jesus is very exclusive with his answer. Jesus is teaching, and this is what he's teaching about. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. (laughs) In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. So what is the subject matter? The subject matter is heaven. He's teaching that he's about to go to heaven and he's going to prepare a place for those who who love him and those who know him as their savior. And whither I go, ye know. And the way ye know. He's talking to his disciples and says, you know the way. You know where I'm going. But Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. He says, I don't know where you're going. You act like I know. You act like I know the way, but I don't know the way. Lord, we we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Jesus says, hey guys, you know the way. You know the way. I've been talking to you about the way the whole time. I've been telling you about the way this entire time. That's that's what we've been talking about. The way to where I go. The way to heaven. And Thomas says, but I don't know the way. Lord, how can I know the way? And Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way. I'm the way to the Father and I'm the way to heaven. And it's only through my death and resurrection that you will ever get to see him and get to spend eternity in heaven. I am am the way doesn't sound very inclusive to me it doesn't sound like we should expect to meet Benjamin Franklin in heaven and if Oprah truly believes what she says she believes it doesn't sound like we should expect to see her there either 
Because there is no other way to get to heaven but through Jesus. Every world religion has a sense of sin and salvation. Every major world religion speaks of how we can get to salvation. Buddhism speaks of how uh, we should uh, try to reach nirvana. That's what they call theirs. Instead of heaven, it's nirvana. And if we'll renounce the pleasures of the body and change our lifestyle so that you harm no living creatures and have kind thoughts toward everyone, we can get nirvana. Hinduism speaks of how we can have, if we look deep within ourselves and have true knowledge of ourselves, and under, through deep meditation, we can get some sort of enlightenment. And it is through this enlightenment that we will want to be good to our fellow man so that we might store up enough good karma that we will be released into heaven or released from the process of reincarnation. That's their heaven. And if we'll do good to our fellow man and we'll reach deep enough, we can get there. Islam speaks of salvation and and really this is as simple as it gets. If you'll give alms and if you'll fast and you'll pray and you'll lead your life according to Islam and the Quran, you can get to heaven. Even in Catholicism, which many people consider Christianity, and I'm here today to tell you, if this is your idea of Christianity, you're out in the cold. But the, 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 the Catholics teach that you must come to the knowledge of Jesus as Savior. You must then participate in communion and uh, baptism through the church. You must maintain your church membership. You must do good. You must confess your sins to a priest. You must do, by their own standards, at least ten different requirements so that you might earn entrance into heaven. And I'm here today to tell you that every major world religion says, if you'll do, if you'll try, if you'll get enough, if you'll work hard enough, you can get there. And the difference between every world religion and Christianity is they say you've got to do to get it. And the Bible teaches that Jesus has already done so that he could give it. My friend, you may be thinking this morning that you're not that bad of a person. The Bible says you are a sinner and you're on your way to hell. The Bible teaches us that uh, this idea that if our good works outweigh our bad works, the Bible blows that out of the water when it says, there shall no flesh be justified by the deeds of the law. You cannot do enough good to impress a holy God. You are absolutely running away from him as fast as you can. And God is beckoning you this morning and God is calling you this morning. And he's saying, I have offered unto you salvation. And it is through the person of my son, if you believe on his death and his burial, in his resurrection and you'll ask him to save you you can be saved this morning I want to tell you something I do not get a raise for every person that gets saved this morning in staff meeting on Wednesday nobody will pat me on the back if somebody gets saved this morning if they do I'd break their hand I'm not here trying to build a church. I'm not here trying to get you into something that you can't get out of. I am trying to tell you what the Bible says it means to be saved. And there is only one way. And that is through Jesus Christ. 